Hello and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Today's episode is the fifth in our series, and I'll be giving you a close look at some of the detail behind what is colloquially known as trash hauling. In other words, the basic mission of moving passengers and cargo on a RAF C-130s. I'm your host, Bill Kurilakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 30 years in the Canadian Air Force and Royal Australian Air Force, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast series is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in 2024. Today we're going to cover three general topics, all to do with the main business of moving passengers and cargo. Firstly, we'll consider the mechanics behind normal cargo and or passenger runs. We'll then look at how scheduled flights, called couriers or service flights, came to be. And we'll conclude with a look at passenger conditions in the cargo hold of a C-130. The basic mission of moving passengers and cargo has had many different doctrinal and colloquial names over the years. The modern Australian Defence Force term is Air Logistics Support, or ALS for short. It all starts with determining just who can use the C-130 services and for how many hours. Each aircraft type has a budget of hours that can be flown in a given fiscal year. Aircraft hours were allocated to each service for air mobility purposes, generally based on annual unit bids. For example, the Special Air Services Regiment might have bid for 100 C-130 hours to do airdrop training. The Army had a ground liaison staff to advise air mobility planners when it intended to use those allocated hours. Air mobility planners, either in Headquarters Operational Command or Headquarters 86 Wing prior to the mid-2000s and then the Air Mobility Control Center after that, determined which aircraft was best suited to the particular mission and assigned it to the relevant squadron. Whenever there was more demand than the available aircraft and crews could support, the air mobility planners attempted to combine loads and moved tasking dates to best achieve the priorities of the day. Essential operations, critical aircrew training, national commitments, and representational tasks normally took precedence over scheduled or routine missions, these air mobility prioritization decisions were made on a daily basis. Once assigned to a squadron, that unit's operations staff allocated a crew to the mission. There were some concurrent preparatory tasks that then had to take place. Operations staff at the relevant squadron or the controlling headquarters prepared the authorization paperwork, arranged for hire cars, hotels, fuel, and permissions to land at airfields as required. After consulting with the crew, Operations staff informed maintenance of the required configuration for the aircraft, including the number of seats, number of pallets to be carried, or description of abnormal cargo such as vehicles. Maintenance prepared the aircraft in the correct configuration, making it ready for the flight engineer and pilots for somewhere around two hours before the planned departure time. Passengers were informed of when to arrive for processing prior to the flight. Air movement section checked in passengers and prepared the load. The flight engineer and pilots liaise with maintenance to review any unserviceabilities the aircraft might have had. C-130s often flew with minor technical faults, so long as there was a safe way to manage the mission without the affected system. 
The flight engineer then checked aircraft systems and readied the aircraft in preparation for the arrival of the rest of the crew. The loadmaster reviewed the load and planned how the aircraft should be loaded to ensure rapid turnarounds at destinations. If the load was unusual, the loadmaster would refer to loading instructions or contact the Air Mobility Training and Development Unit about how to manage the load. Duties included aircraft weight and balance certification, supervision of cargo passenger loading and unloading, crew and passenger catering at en route destinations, plus customs and immigration documentation on international tasks. The co-pilot and navigator considered weather, air routes, the amount of fuel needed, notices to airmen, which are notes about what's happening in the airspace and at destinations. Aircraft weight and strength of the runways, diplomatic clearances, which were often needed to be organized weeks in advance of the mission, mission needs such as electronic warfare equipment, and flight planning. Critically, most of the above tasks had to be organized for every stop along the route. Failure to organize even one aspect, for example, a diplomatic clearance, or maybe a forklift to meet the aircraft, or a customs agent to clear the load, or a fuel truck to refuel at a remote airfield. All of these things could easily delay a mission, sometimes for days. The aircraft captain oversaw all of this and briefed the authorizing officer, who was usually an experienced aviation officer of squadron leader rank or higher, sometimes flight lieutenants, about the mission, the risks, and how the captain intended to manage those risks. Crew fatigue was a common discussion point, along with any demanding parts of the mission such as a challenging runway, bad weather, unusual loads and passengers, etc. If everyone did their job and the aircraft was serviceable, the mission would depart as scheduled. What could possibly go wrong? Many of those ALS tasks were ad hoc, but a system was developed for regularly scheduled flights. These were called courier tasks, and the very first one of these was a routine C-130 task, but it was momentous. It was flown in Southeast Australia on the 13th of April, 1959. Flying officer Chakwinot and his crew flew A97-212 on a trial Courier A from Richmond to Laverton and return, carrying a fire tender to Richmond. The Courier flights heralded the implementation of what were later called service flights. These flights gave certainty to ADF units across Australia, which could then plan on seeing a C-130 along a set route on certain days at a set frequency, and most importantly, with room to spare in the cargo hold to meet their needs. The first scheduled Courier A was then flown on the 4th of May, 1959. This route eventually became known as the East Coast Courier and was later renamed the Southern Service Flight, sometimes abbreviated to Southern Service. Because C-130s could cross Australia in approximately six hours, and with the number of C-130s available, air planners established a meaningful and effective schedule of flights. Initially, there were four courier flights, A, B, C, and D. One of them ran up and down the east coast of Australia. Another one was just a local one down to southern Victoria from Richmond. And then the courier C was from Richmond to Pierce and then out to Cocos Island and Butterworth. And the courier D serviced Air Combat Group by flying to Williamtown and then Darwin and Tyndall in the reverse. And commencing in 1965, there was a Courier E established, which was a Butterworth to Vietnam mission. By the end of the third quarter in 1959, these service flights, or courier flights, were essential to the ADF, and between 25 to 50% of 36 squadrons' flying hours were expended on them. 
Demand grew to the point where 86 Wings planners had to implement a prioritization system to allocate seats and cargo space to essential needs. When spare space was available, spouses and families of ADF members were able to occasionally travel across Australia in a C-130. And for some flights, for example funerals or returning to Australia for Christmas, seating was dedicated to families of defense members. The routine and somewhat predictable nature of the service flights was particularly important to ADF units in the 60s, 70s, and 80s because commercial air transport was prohibitively expensive in Australia, and without the service flights, units could not send their personnel to essential meetings, training, and events across the country. But of course, these flights were on C-130s, and every once in a while, it didn't show up. Despite best efforts, there was a level of uncertainty involved with service flights. Occasionally, higher priority tasking led to the reallocation of an aircraft, resulting in the complete cancellation of a service flight, with no alternative military means of transport for the stranded passengers and delayed cargo. This was particularly annoying for families if they were overseas. Other times, given that air mobility planners did not have backup aircraft available to replace the inevitable unserviceable aircraft, the service flights occasionally did not arrive at the prescribed time or days. Despite these occasional hiccups, the service flights were a key feature of C-130 ALS capability for decades. One of the great benefits was that these flights provided much-needed experience for 36 Squadron aircrew and support agencies. So we've talked a little bit about passengers getting onto C-130s and flying all over the world, really. Let's see if we can paint a picture for you about passenger experience in a C-130. Remember, C-130s were designed as a cargo-carrying aircraft. Passenger comforts were there, but they were not foremost in the minds of the designers. So let's talk through all the aspects of being a passenger in a Hercules. We'll start with air conditioning. Air conditioning had two purposes. Of course, passenger and crew comfort, but also pressurization. The C-130A and C-130E had one large air conditioner and a small cockpit air conditioner, while the C-130H had two large air conditioners. The A and E had poor overall temperature control and pressurization. This was particularly noticeable if the underfloor heating was not working, and oh by the way, the C-130A didn't even have underfloor heating, and it was annoying in an E model or an H model when the underfloor heating wasn't working because the floor would get ice cold, as it did in C-130As, and any feet resting on the floor, even with boots on, would start to get numb. The air conditioners did not have fine filtration, leading to a unique smell in the airplane. After a time, it had a slight stench of oil, hydraulic fluid, and jet fuel, which became overpowering at higher temperatures. To make matters worse, in the early days of C-130 operations, smoking was permitted during flight. Ashtrays were even fitted in the cockpit. This was not too bad in the cockpit, where the rules said a maximum of two people could smoke at any given time, and the sextant hatch could be opened to vent the smoke. The sextant hatch was a small hole about two to three centimeters across, and it could be opened from inside the aircraft, and the pressurized air in the cockpit would be blown out through that hole. But in the cargo compartment, the smoky, smelly air could be stifling. If the large air conditioning unit did not work in a C-130A or E, and this happened once in a while, the aircraft could not pressurize properly. And to deal with the need for airflow, when the large air conditioning unit wasn't working, airflow was created in the cargo compartment by selecting a function called aux vent, which opened the auxiliary vent valve at the air conditioning unit. 
This allowed air from outside, ram air, to flow through the overhead ducts into the cargo compartment and out a small vent in the back of the aircraft called the outflow valve. This led to much discomfort in hot weather, particularly for troops who suffered through low-level training sorties. Let's talk about the seats now. They were made of strengthened nylon. The normal C-130 passenger seats were hung on aluminum tubes running along the back of the seat and the front of the seats with a cargo net-like mesh as the back support. Seats had almost no flexibility, and the back mesh was often uncomfortably stiff or provided no support at all. Sitting in these for hours on end would result in very sore backsides and stiff back muscles. A full passenger load resulted in the impossible situation of having passengers sitting with knees interlocked with the person across from them because there was not a dedicated aisle. Additionally, with seats spaced at 20 inches, 51 centimeters apart, and no gaps between seats, people sat shoulder to shoulder with the person on either side of them. Even moderately large people, we wouldn't have those in the C-130, would we, had to twist their bodies or overlap shoulders. Given the sideways-facing seats and the fact that the aircraft cruised with a slightly nose-up attitude, passengers found it extremely uncomfortable when the aircraft was full. Worse yet, when sitting with interlocked knees, moving from the front to the rear of the aircraft, for example, to use the toilet, was difficult for the crew and passengers. Some crew members opted to swing from the overhead rack, which was called the hog's trough, that ran the length of the cargo compartment. Others opted to get from the front to the back by walking on top of the seat stanchions, which was really a pretty dangerous proposition because you could slip and fall on people. Alternatively, many crew walked on people's legs to get from the cockpit to the toilet, and we heard Carl Coyne talk about this in the third episode. And I've done it myself, and there is no apology that makes this okay from the passenger's point of view. Another feature of being a passenger in a C-130 is motion sickness. Everyone has a different tolerance to motion. People aren't accustomed to the constant motion of a C-130's vibration, its oscillations and maneuvering could easily develop motion sickness in the cargo compartment because it only had a few small windows on each side, thus taking away a person's reference to the horizon, which is really important for people's sense of balance and stability. These windows were situated below eye level, they were often smudged and scratched, and they were behind seated passengers. In other words, they were really hard to look through. The Hercules also had very stiff wings with almost no flexibility. Therefore, air turbulence markedly affected the ride of the aircraft. Put another way, in turbulent air, often associated with low-level flights on a hot day, the aircraft bounced a lot. So much so that combined with the other passenger discomforts and the lack of windows, many a passenger vomited in the back of a C-130. Although uncommon, on some training flights, crews inadvertently exacerbated Army passenger discomfort and their propensity for motion sickness by practicing defensive maneuvers such as high bank angles, G-loading, or negative G, causing much motion sickness amongst the passengers. Let's talk about cargo now. You could have the back of the aircraft configured with some seats and some room for cargo. This was a mixed blessing for passengers. At times, the cargo impinged on freedom of movement for the passengers, or it took up valuable legroom. If the passengers were flying with the right kind of cargo, in other words, it was flat, some people could get some shut-eye by lying on top of it. Unfortunately, this practice ceased after the introduction of work health and safety legislation, 
which required passengers to be in a regulation seat most of the time, despite the fact that those seats were inherently unsafe and uncomfortable. Let's turn to noise now. With engines running, the auxiliary power unit on, or the gas turbine compressor, and a hydraulic pump, and some of the seats were within inches of hydraulic pumps, C-130s generated 100 to 120 decibels of noise inside the back of the aircraft. That noise is the equivalent of having a chainsaw running by your ear. People sitting next to one another in a C-130 had to shout to be heard. In the initial C-130A build, old school principles dictated that aircraft weight needed to be saved at every point. As a result, the C-130A had very little sound insulation between the engines and propellers and the passengers. In some places, it was just bare metal, and in others there was a thin layer of plastic sheeting, resulting in a very noisy flight. Given the abundance of power these C-130s had, padded lining was later added to help cut down the noise, but the end result was still over 100 decibels in the cargo compartment. Although the Hercules came with a speaker system, it was crude, loud, and often just blended in with the rest of the noise coming from the aircraft, making mid-flight announcements pretty much unintelligible. We mentioned propellers earlier. Let's take a little bit of a look at what propellers did to passenger comfort. Propellers induced vibration and noise caused by imbalances in propellers, differences in revolutions per minute of the propellers, and proximity of the propellers to each other, let alone the noise they made just by turning. The vibration from propellers had the potential to cause significant discomfort through the aircraft. Thus, engineering solutions were adopted to manage the side effects of having the propellers. One solution was to ensure all the propellers were spinning at the same RPM, because if they were not, passengers felt a kind of a beat that seemed to pass right through their bodies. The C-130A had a synchronizer. Now, some of you might say it's a synchrophaser. No, that came later. The C-130A had a synchronizer that ensured all propellers were at the same RPM. Another propeller-induced discomfort was caused by the added noise which occurred when propeller tips came close to one another, such as between engines number 1 and 2. The C-130E and C-130Hs came with a synchrophaser that ensured RPMs were matched and the distance between propeller tips of engines on each side was maximized. Regardless of these systems, vibration was ever-present in C-130s and could be felt throughout the aircraft. To people in the aircraft, the vibration sometimes seemed subtle, yet anyone resting a part of their body on a fixed component, for example if you leaned your head against one of the seat frames, you could feel the vibration so much that your teeth literally rattled. One of the best sensations of passenger experience was the point when the propellers were set to idle after a long flight and that incessant vibration stopped. The atmosphere in the back of the aircraft was another issue. To expedite missions and to avoid the risk of having an unserviceability during startup, C-130s often conducted engine running, onloads, and offloads of cargo or had passengers enter or leave the airplane while the engines were running. And that was called an engine running onload or offload, and the short form was ERO. This was sometimes done through the crew door for passengers, but more often it was done with the ramp and door open at the back of the aircraft. The hot exhaust coming out of the four T-56A engines was pervasive, and it quickly found its way into the aircraft where the sickly sweet smell of burnt JP-8 could just turn one's stomach. At dirt airfields, the high volume of exhaust swirling behind the aircraft, mixed with huge plumes of dust, 
permeating every crevice in the aircraft and the pores of passengers and crew. This happened frequently enough with Australian C-130s that an aircraft which was not cleaned for a while developed a particularly earthy smell, which was mixed with those hydrocarbon smells I talked about earlier, and a red tinge reflecting the color of the dust in the center of Australia would appear across the aircraft and there was a gritty feel to everything you touched in the airplane. This was all well known by RAF C-130 crews. Of course, being in the back of the airplane, sometimes you need emergency oxygen. The Earth's atmosphere thins with altitude, and between 10 and 13,000 feet, the air becomes too devoid of oxygen to sustain consciousness. The higher the altitude, the more people are affected by this phenomenon, called hypoxia. Oxygen deprivation is insidious, and all aircrew are trained to recognize the symptoms and don oxygen masks whenever they sense it. So, the symptoms could be things like getting dizzy, getting hot, having tingling sensation, some people got giddy, a few people had no symptoms. I myself used to get really hot when I was feeling hypoxic. And it has actually happened to me in flight where we had the doors open at high altitude and I started getting hypoxic. And the answer to being hypoxic is to start breathing oxygen. Civilian aircraft typically have drop-down masks for passengers to use if there is smoke or lack of air in the cabin. You'd be familiar with that if you've flown on a commercial airplane. What you might not know is that those systems are only intended to last for a few minutes while the crew gets the aircraft down to below 10,000 feet where the air is breathable. There was no such system on C-130s. There wasn't a dedicated oxygen source for passengers until the emergency passenger oxygen system, called EPAWS for short, became available in the 1990s. EPAWS was basically a bag that you had to pull up over your head. It had a rubber seal around the neck and you activated this cartridge that would generate oxygen for a few minutes, 10 to 15 minutes, generally speaking. And in that time, the crew needed to get the aircraft down to 10,000 feet so that the passengers could breathe oxygen. To provide passengers with oxygen in emergency situations prior to the advent of EPAWS, C-130 aircrew endeavored to open the cabin to remove smoke, if it was a smoke problem, or descended as quickly as possible to get to an altitude where there was enough oxygen to open doors and vent the aircraft. On some occasions, loadmasters provided a portable oxygen bottle for passengers to share. For example, Warrant Officer Bob Heffernan recalled a fire in the cargo compartment of a C-130A at 25,000 feet on the way to Tan Son Nut in Vietnam. And this is a quote from Bob. I had an aeromedical evacuation team from Butterworth down the back. While we were in the emergency descent, I grabbed a spare oxygen bottle from the flight deck and gave it to them. I made sure they could share the oxygen bottle until we reached a safe breathing altitude. I then headed to the 245 bulkhead, which was a wall at the front of the cargo compartment, to assist the flight engineer with disconnecting the offending piece of equipment in the radio rack, which was the TACAN. After putting out the fire, I fell over because my oxygen had run out. We completed the emergency checklist, replaced the escape hatch, repressurized, and carried on. All good. And when you had an emergency in the back of the airplane, that's what loadmasters needed to do. Think on their feet and get the job done. Of course, one of the things that everyone needs to use in an airplane is a toilet. Before the C-130J came along, all C-130s had a rudimentary toilet, affectionately known as the honeypot. The honeypot was a tin can, say 40 centimeters high, about 30 centimeters across, a foot across, and it was just a can. And inside the can, they would put a garbage bag with some chemical in it to help cut down on the smell and disinfect whatever went in there. The honeypot was located partway up the ramp on the left-hand side of the airplane. 
There was a loose curtain that could be hung around it to provide some privacy, but there was no way to lock that curtain closed or to seal it off from the rest of the airplane. The toilet seat was exceptionally uncomfortable because it was low to the pedestal, it was small, and it was made of metal. After the first use, the toilet became smelly, of course, because it was essentially just a garbage bag in a can without a flushing mechanism. If a user was unlucky enough to be on a turbulent flight, the blue disinfectant fluid and its contents could splash up, thereby staining the poor user's skin blue for days. For men, there were two urinals. One was at the front of the cargo compartments, on the 245 bulkhead that I mentioned earlier, and the other was at the rear, halfway up the ramp. There was no privacy curtain for the urinals, and so using the one at the front with passengers on board was not normally done. But sometimes it happened. When using the rear urinal, good balance and aim were essential because it was not easy to access. The aim point was only about 10 centimeters across. Due to the excessive corrosion in the sloping longeron under the urinal, which was caused by the urine, 486 Squadron put up signs above the rear urinals which read, Our aim is to reduce structural corrosion. Your aim will help. Aim became a bit more difficult if the pilot and loadmaster conspired to have a bit of fun. This was done by getting the pilots to put in a little bit of rudder when the fellow crewman was ready at the perch, and this would cause him to lose his balance. Of course, this was only ever done when there were no passengers on the flight. Another great feature in the airplane was the bunk. Oh, to be the lucky passenger receiving an invitation to sit in the cockpit. There was no bunk in the C-130A, however the C-130Es and Hs had a bunk. It had two components. There was a cushioned bench seat with enough room to comfortably sit two people, maybe a third if they weren't too big. There was also a cushioned upper bunk, which was intended for people to lay down on so that they could rest or sleep. Best of all, the cockpit was much quieter than the back of the airplane and had a much better view than the back of the airplane. Unfortunately for the average passenger, quite often the cockpit bunk was occupied by a senior officer or a VIP of some sort. In days of old, when political correctness and gender equality were not yet in vogue, the crews tended to favor young female passengers with a seat on the bunk. And of course, plenty of banter from the young men in the crew. Well, that's a wrap for today. In the next episode, we'll talk about some early operational tasking, one of which was Operation Eastbound, for which the crews probably would have liked to have had a bunk. Thanks for listening. And if you know anyone that loves aviation, military history, or was a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about the Workhorse Podcast. You can find this podcast on all the usual platforms and also on my website, spartanspirit.au. That's one word, spartanspirit.au. And this website also has updated information about the Air Mobility Workhorse book. Thanks for listening.